Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm Julie, your host, and I'm so delighted you could join us this week. Oh, do I have a show for you? Oh, my gosh. You're going to love Amber Romaniuk. Amber is here with us. Hi, Amber. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited. I was telling you before we started recording that that I'm as excited to talk with you as really just about anybody that's been on my show. And I've had some amazing people on my show over the years. So uh, Amber, you guys, is going to talk about weight and controlling weight and how to deal with all this stuff. And we were just talking about, I, I don't know a woman who hasn't dealt with this. I, I do know one woman recently told me, and she's she's not even 40 yet. She lost a bunch of weight on those Ozempic shots. Oh, yeah. And that's a whole nother show. But yes. she said to me, the one thing that has made the biggest difference for her is she doesn't think about food. Mm. She said that was the one thing that the shots did for her. But she is saying she's going to stay on them for the rest of her life. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, that may not be such a great idea. Yeah, but but the part about not thinking about food really struck me. And I thought, I think about food even, even when I'm not hungry. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm really delighted that you could join us today and, and share some of your wisdom with oh. all of us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You bet. All right, everybody. Here's the scoop on Amber. Amber Romanyuk is an emotional eating, digestive, and hormone expert who helps high-achieving women create a level of body confidence and optimal health through powerful mindset healing, self-care, and overcoming self-sabotage with food. That's a mouthful, girl. Amber's, quote, no sugarcoating, end quote, podcast has over a million downloads, impressive, more than 400 episodes, impressive, and is heard in more than 88 countries, impressive as well. So welcome again. Just Thank thrilled you. that you're here. All right, let's just start off. You're very open about gaining and losing more than a thousand pounds. How is that even possible? And I am so eager to hear what your story is. How does somebody gain and lose a thousand pounds? Yeah. And to be honest, it's quite easy when you're in a a food and body battle to go up and down 30, 40, 50 pounds every two or three months over a period of five years. And the next thing you know, you've gained and lost a thousand pounds. And that was really through the journey of struggling with body image issues, this deep obsession to want to lose weight and have the perfect body. 
and then battling with binge eating, food addiction, emotional eating, binging and purging, and then restriction and exercise and trying to find the right diet, the right eating style, the quick fix, right? We're just so conditioned that it's about eating less and exercising more. And we've been so programmed and marketed to that once you lose weight, you'll finally be happy. Um, when we're not taught that happiness is something you cultivate within and you're a lot happier when you build a healthy relationship with food in your body, right? But we're not taught any of that. We're taught to diet and and all the other things. So um, I'm happy to dive a bit more into my story, which will give more insight into the, the loss and gain of the thousand pounds. But that's just, it, it was actually quite easy to lose and gain the weight because it was like, I was either in a binge phase or I was in a weight loss phase. I was out of control thinking I was in control, but I was out of control. So my relationship with food and body from a really young age was off at a whack, right? I just didn't realize it. So I think we all have key events that happen to us growing up that create this relationship with food, body, identity. And so a couple key ones for me, number one, when I was five, it was my first day taking the bus. You know, you're five, you're so excited. You make new friends. I get on the bus. The older boys start yelling at me, calling me fat and ugly, and the whole bus is laughing at me, and I'm mortified. I don't know how to brush that off, and I took that on as my identity for the next 20 years, right? So we get bullied, we get name-called, and of course, when it's boys, it's even worse. And so I really took that on, and I didn't know how to brush it off. And so all growing up, I'm just like, food is a friend, food tastes good, it never calls me names, like I I can be friends with food. And then I think the other thing that really shaped my identity with revolving a lot of my focus around food and you know always having whatever food I wanted available was with my mom so she all growing up had a very emotional relationship with food and she had a food addiction I just didn't know it until I healed my own and looked back at her behavior and she had multiple sclerosis she was diagnosed with it before I was born and so I think part of her way of compensating right with things we couldn't do together because she'd get too fatigued or her symptoms would kick in was we would include food in everything we did together. So then I thought it was normal to just sit down and eat a couple of cookies, a chocolate bar and a bag of chips and you know that that's normal and that there was always readily available at home on the counter, at least one or two pies, three kinds of ice cream in the freezer, a Costco sized box of chocolate bars in the cupboard, right, et cetera, et cetera. And we were always eating it together. So it just seemed normal. And then you hit your teens and get exposed to Hollywood and the media and the magazines and the music videos. And, and you start to compare your body going, how come my stomach isn't that flat? Why don't I have the thigh gap? Why don't I look that good? They're getting all the intention. Like in order for me to get love, money, success, attention, I must have to look a certain way. Right. And then we build our unworthiness, our not feeling good enough. Right. The comparison, the body rejection. And then what are we sold as the solution? Diets right? I remember the first two diets I tried, I was 11 and 12. The South Beach diet book, I I bought that with my allowance at the chapters bookstore. And then I was, we got dial up internet and I'm Googling diets to lose 10 pounds and the gazpacho diet comes up. So you make this, I don't even know if I'm saying right, but you make a batch of gazpacho. It's like raw tomato, onion, peppers, and you eat that for 10 days. I didn't make it past the first day, right? But this was my desperation to start trying things to lose weight. And then from there, what really triggered me to go deep into the binge eating was after my first breakup, I was so hurt I couldn't eat. I lost weight really fast, loved all the attention I was getting, but at the same time was very arrogant and very egotistical. I was obsessed with my body even more. And now I'm picking my body apart even more, right? 
I, I reached my goal weight. Oh, maybe I can lose a few more pounds. It's never enough. Even when you reach the goal weight, if you don't love your body and you don't love yourself, it's never enough, right? We want, we want more. And so what triggered the binge eating to start was I obviously was restricting a lot, exercising two hours a day. I don't suggest anyone do any of this. And I went to a barbecue one day and I was like, I'm only going to have salad. And of course, after a few hours, I gave in and had a piece of ice cream cake. And that just triggered this massive euphoric, pleasurable moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, I want more. And so I ate another piece of cake, took the chocolate bar into the bathroom, ate the whole thing. People are like looking for the chocolate to make s'mores. And I'm like, oh my God, I just stole someone else's chocolate and went to the bathroom and ate it on the way home, stopped and got fast food and binge ate for the first memorable time. And then of course that fueled the cycle of I binged. Oh my gosh, I'm in panic. I messed up. I'm going to gain weight. Now my gym workout tomorrow has to be like three hours. I've got to burn all this off. I'm, I'm not having breakfast. I'm only having salad for dinner. And so this all or nothing cycle just blew up in my face. And I obviously didn't know any of what I was doing at the time. And the next thing you know, I go from being underweight to now gaining 80 pounds in four months and being deep in binge eating. Like I worked at a retail store. My days off look like going to the, all the fast food, the bakery is buying all the food and just binging my way through the day most days. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I was completely out of control with food. Um, and I, I just was like, something's wrong with me. Why is this all of a sudden happening? So that really continued for about a year until I had my low point moment. And I think a lot of us are hesitant to change and or to think that there may be something going on that isn't supporting our greatest good because we get in this comfort zone of familiarity. Food tastes good. It feels good when I eat it. I can numb out my emotions. I don't have to deal with what's really going on. I get to check out. It's always there for me. Like I just started to revolve my whole world around it. And, you know, the suffering that I was experiencing was massive. The digestive issues I had developed, the horrific bloating and pain, the inflammation, because I was eating until I was so full, I was sick. I went through six months of binging and purging, but stopped that because I was concerned of my heart health and my cardiac health if I kept doing that. Um, but it was just like, I was in this comfort zone of familiarity of using food. Food's my safety blanket. It's my crutch. It's my friend. I had started isolating, didn't want people to see me because I had gained weight. And so to think about not using food as a crutch, to think about who I would be without food being such a big part of my identity or the scale or being obsessed with being a certain number I'm like, I don't know what life would be like or who I would be without any of that. And I'm too afraid to play with or go down that path and see what would happen, right? Because you're like, well, who am I going to be? I don't know. And if I don't know, and there's unknown, well, fear kicks in, I'm shutting down. I'm just going to stay in this comfort zone, even though I'm suffering like significantly, I'm spending all this money on food I don't have. I'm gaining and losing, you know, unhealthy amounts of weight every other month. It's so bad for your liver and all these other things. So I had a night where I'd finished a binge and I was just laying on the couch crying because I was reading about, you know, health issues that are developed and, and long-term issues may have if you continue to binge eat. I now I'm identifying, okay, I'm binge eating, I'm losing control with food. And so I lay on the couch, I'm crying, I'm in pain, I'm scared for my life thinking I'm not going to make 30 if I keep this up. And so I... I was like, okay, I always throw the food in the garbage because I'm not going to go dig through the garbage and eat. And that night, some of the food had settled. I'm like, well, if this is the last time I'm going to do this, 
I want the rest of the cookies. And so that night I went into my little apartment in the kitchen. I grabbed my little blue garbage can and I pulled out those cookies and I ate them. And then I just broke down. I'm just crying. I'm just saying a lot like, why is this happening to me? I just ate it of a garbage. Like, who am I? Why am I? What is going on? Why is this my life? I thought I was going to have a good life. I don't understand. But I needed that moment to happen. And I don't wish those moments upon anyone. But sometimes we need the wake up call because what that moment did for me is the fear of change, the fear of the unknown, the fear of getting uncomfortable all got crushed in that moment because the suffering got so big that I'm like, I am not willing to keep tolerating this level of suffering. I have no idea what the path is going to look like. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this, heal this, look at this. I know nothing about any of this, but I know I can't stay here. So I literally felt like I was at the edge of the Amazon jungle with a butter knife getting ready to try and find my way through. But there was this voice that I couldn't identify at the time, but there's this really quiet voice that's just like, you'll figure it out. You're going to get there. Just like take a step. And I did. And we can talk about chunks of what that journey looked like, but I'll pause there because I know that I just, you know, it's a lot, it's deep, but that's what needed to happen for me. And where I find a lot of people get stuck is the fear of change, the fear of failure, the unknown. What if it doesn't work? And then we talk ourselves out of doing anything and we freeze and then we keep suffering and we don't want to do that. Boy, can I relate? I I laugh. My girlfriends that were my friends when we were kids, little kids, are, I think I was weaned on Twinkies, really, Mm -hmm. in the pantry. We, our house was the favorite pantry in the neighborhood. All the kids would come over. We had so much crap in there. I don't drink soda pop, thank you, God, but tons of pop, Twinkies, Ho-Hos, Mm Ding-Dongs, cookies, candy, chips. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. And same thing, I'd binge and then I'd feel terrible both physically and emotionally. Yeah. And I I did OptiFast with Oprah when Oprah did it in the late 80s in Chicago. I was in LA and I did it mm-hmm. and drank this awful tasting stuff for 11 weeks, no food, 400 calories a day. Oh. And I lost 50 pounds in 11 weeks. Wow. And I went off of it in the first week I was off of it, Amber. I ate a box of Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies. And I thought, mm-hmm. Ryan, what are you doing? And mm-hmm. so finally, my kiss the cement moment was when I said, I, I can't control the sugar. I'm a sugar mm-hmm. addict. Mm-hmm. And so I gave it up and I've been sugar sober for four years now. And that's been the number one thing that's helped me feel like, okay, you know, you can do this. You can handle this. And it's not that I don't think about it. If I walk by a a bakery or something, my brain goes, oh, and then I immediately say, yeah, I don't eat that anymore. Yeah, sugar was my nemesis too. Sugar is so addictive. I remember sitting at a table, Amber, and there was a plate of cookies there and I'd say, okay, I'm just going to have one, like what you were talking about. I'm just going to have one. And then I'd eat 15 till they were all gone. And I felt sick and I felt even worse emotionally. And it was, it's like the shutoff switch in my brain was malfunctioning. It's like, it just didn't work. Yeah. But it's still, I still have to really pay attention. 
Yeah. So, you know, if I'm around something, especially if it's refined, I mean, I'm not going to binge on broccoli, but, no. but if, but I can, if I'm in a Mexican restaurant, I'll put some chips on my plate and I'll use a lot of guac, but I'll say, put them on the other side of the table. Cause I can eat a couple of baskets of chips, mm-hmm. like no problem by myself. Yeah. 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 And it's funny because that's actually one of the first things I started to learn about when I started the healing journey was sugar, because I'm like, sugar is my biggest issue. I have a bit and I'm losing control. Same as you, I'm eating, I'm baking a batch of muffins. I'm eating all 12 of them. I'm buying a loaf. I'm eating the whole thing. I'm cookies. I'm eating a whole box, like a complete loss of control until it's either gone or I'm so full that like, I literally can't stomach anymore. And it it was to the point where I was speeding to the store, like lying to friends and family. If I was at events, like leaving, making up excuses to speed to the store and buy all this food and binge. Right. And, you know, you have this addiction when you're in this complete loss of control with it. But I think one thing with sugar that people don't realize is it's not you. It's the sugar like refined sugar is 10 times more addictive than cocaine. It excites the same part of the brain as a hard drug. It gives you the biggest dopamine high, which is one of our feel good hormones we produce in the brain. What I find for a lot of us who have struggled or are struggling with binging, emotional eating, we can get into the differences is that we actually, a lot of us have low dopamine and serotonin levels. So one of the reasons this impacts us even more is because we get an even bigger high and hit and we have that feel good pleasure, euphoric few minutes. And then the brain has a pleasure center called the hippocampus that records that memory. So the next time you're down or bored or sad or happy or angry, and you're like, oh, what do I do? to boost my mood, that hippocampus lights up and goes, you eat and you eat sugar or you eat these foods, these give you pleasure. So one of the reasons it's, you know, seems so difficult to face and deal with some of these foods and be able to get to this place where you can have balance with them is because we're not taught about how it excites the brain. We're not taught about the pleasure center of the brain. We're not taught that we're deficient in dopamine. We're not taught healthy ways to boost our dopamine and serotonin levels to have stable moods. So we're not reaching for quick fix highs. And then we're not taught how to cope emotionally in healthy ways and or how to regulate our blood sugar properly, regulate our hormones and nervous system and our gut so that the cravings go away and we can actually manage small amounts without losing control. We're not taught any of that. So how are we supposed to just have willpower? That's To me, that's the biggest BS story ever. Have more willpower, just don't buy the food or just have one. It's that easy. It's not that easy for most people. I agree. And I had yeast overgrowth. I had a leaky gut for the first 40 years of my life. And the doctor who got me well, God love him. He discovered candida yeast overgrowth. The late Dr. Orion Trust was his name. And I walked into his office one day ever and I said, is it a character flaw that I crave sugar? (laughs) He started laughing (sighs) and he said, oh, no, no, no. The yeast craves sugar and then sugar's really addictive. And that was the first time I thought, okay, there's a physiological thing going on here. Yeah, there's an emotional component, which is what I was blaming myself for. But there's a physiological thing that's going on here. You're right. And candida, it's like I'm looking in a mirror right now because I had the worst candida overgrowth that the doctor when I was working at a health clinic before I started my business had ever seen in her 12 years of practice. And I had it my whole life too. Countless antibiotics growing up all the sugar I ate growing up and into the binging into my early twenties. But the, so this, so this is the thing when I was working there and she's like, yeah, you need to do this candida protocol. You need to get rid of the yeast. It's the only way you're going to heal your gut and feel better. Right. Which is the first red flag. Cause there's never only just one way. 
And when you're struggling with binge eating, emotional eating, or any kind of emotional relationship with food, getting put on a restrictive elimination protocol or any kind of restrictive diet actually will trigger more of an all or nothing mentality, more restriction, and then rebellion when we have a bad day. And then we're going to go into that effing mentality and go, I'm going to eat whatever I want because I don't care today. And that just can fuel and feed it more. And that's what happened to me. So I was put on these insane antifungals, put on a very restrictive diet and told you have to follow this. If you don't, it's never going to get better. And of course it made my binges worse because she didn't know I was binging. I didn't want to tell anyone. And I didn't know that restrictive things just made it worse. And so if you're trying to heal your gut or you're trying to reduce inflammation or you're trying to right heal something in your body, but you're struggling with this, I always encourage deal with this first because otherwise that will fuel this. And I see it with women coming to me all the time. Now, maybe you're an exception and that's not happening to you, but it just makes it worse. And I, I don't believe restriction is the way to heal the body. I think we heal the relationship with food. A lot of healing occurs while we do that because it's so stressful on the body when we're binging and then feeling guilty and then restricting. Um, so if we can build balance with our relationship with food and then do things like balance the gut flora without a lot of restriction, to be honest, it's the best of both worlds. And finally, like six years after finding out I had candida, I was able to heal it after I stopped binging and figured out a, a way that worked for me. Right. So I want to just share that because I know people just want to feel better and heal, but restriction is usually one of the biggest triggers to keep the sabotage going. What is emotional eating? Good question. So emotional eating to me is any reason for eating other than physical nourishment. So physical nourishment is I haven't eaten in a few hours. I want to fuel my body. It is my blood sugars dropped. I'm hangry, tired, irritable, right? Dizzy, lightheaded. My stomach is growling. I have a hunger signal. If you don't have a hunger signal. There's reasons for that we can get into, but those would be some of the physical reasons, right? For vitality, for your health. Everything else is emotional. So boredom, sad, angry, frustrated. You've had a negative interaction with someone. You're an empath and you take on everyone's stuff and you feel the energy of the collective all the time and you don't know how to cope with it. So you're numbing with food. To me, working while you eat and multitasking while you eat is emotional because what's the driver behind not prioritizing, slowing down and eating mindfully? Usually I don't have time. I'm not good enough. I have to get all these things done for other people and I don't want to let anyone else down. So there's still that insecurity and unworthiness, which is emotional, which is fueling our lack of desire to prioritize ourselves and prioritize nourishing the body properly. Um, it is eating a lot of sugar and then your cravings increase and then you keep giving into them. It is too much exercise and not eating enough. It is getting on the scale and hating the number you see and then going, well, that diet didn't work. So screw today. It doesn't matter anymore. I'm going to go eat whatever I want, which is a huge trigger. It used to be a huge trigger for me. Fatigue is a huge trigger because when you're tired, you increase your appetite ghrelin levels and you, it's easier to go into that screw it. I don't care. I'm tired today mentality. So we start to see how physical symptoms feel emotional eating. And then how, of course, our emotional state does as well. Is it different for women than men? I, I know way more women that struggle with weight than men and men that I know that are really heavy. It's, it, it may be an act, but they don't seem to care as much as women. And that may be a cultural thing, but I, what, what have you found? I know yeah. you coach women primarily, but what's your, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, good question. So the the men I've interacted with as well who have come forth and gotten support or done consultations or even just emailed me, it is very similar. It's the unworth it births from unworthiness, not feeling good enough. We have this void. And then we've been conditioned, we need to look a certain way. So we're chasing the diets, we're chasing the number on the scale, we're chasing validation from others, right? We're chasing this desire to need to look a certain way. And we put our body through all these diets and restrictions, and then we lose control and we go the other way. So I find it's the same for both. I do find it's about 90% of the female population. I feel we've been a lot more targeted. Hello, Hollywood. Hello, Photoshopping. Hello, right? All of the sexualization of women. And I'm all for wanting to look nice and wanting to feel good in your body and all of that. But I just think that we've been so deceived with the marketing and all the Photoshopping and CGIing and video. Like we don't know how much is real and how much is fake. Um, and so I think women have been more targeted. And then you look at movies. Women are getting belittled if they're not a certain size. Who's emotionally eating in the movies? Women are, right? Who's who's getting criticized for being overweight in the movies? Women are. So I just feel like there is more of an emphasis put on. It's about 50% of the male population I know that struggles as well, which is still too much. Um, some may just put it off, but I do feel deep down there is this maybe denial of wanting to get vulnerable and admit that there is probably an insecurity there unless they're really confident, right? And, and I always say from a weight perspective, weight is a protective mechanism, if your body feels safe and happy and healthy and whole, you're not going to be gaining a bunch of weight and continue to gain and gain and gain, right? So if you're gaining a bunch of weight, to me, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm curious for you. What's going on inside of you that, that is causing you to not feel safe and continue to hang on? And if you're telling me that there's nothing, there's there's always something. So is it that you're afraid to look at it or you don't want to look at it or you just don't know? But that's my response to that. I've read several times that women who've been sexually abused, either raped or as children, perhaps, or mm -hmm. even by a spouse, that they tend to be heavier and that it is kind of a psychological protection thing, like who's going to want me if I'm fat? Yeah. Is that oh, what yeah. you found? Yes, 100%. Because when we have the trauma, right, there is this lack of safety we feel there's the stress response this cortisol response and so the body's way of protecting is putting on weight especially the abdomen area to, to protect our vital organs in case a bear comes around but when we've had these kinds of traumas there's these looping memories in our brain and then there is what you just shared if i'm hanging on to this weight who's going to find me desirable i will be safer i likely will not you know have this happen to me again if i'm hanging on and you know, all the love in the world and compassion to the women that have gone through those experiences because it'd be horrible. And it's like, you know, what if you could heal that? And what if you could, you know, learn how to feel safe in your body again and, and, and trust that we don't have to stay in this fear state and, and, and hang on to the past, but the body will. Even I've had women who've had no trauma, but they're afraid to death of being successful or being seen or getting attention or even a compliment. And so they unconsciously hang on to the weight because it's the protective barrier they hide behind to not get attention because they don't know how they can handle it, right? They don't feel worthy to receive it. So even for stuff like that. Do women in particular self-sabotage with food just because it's so readily available and it's it's not seen as, oh, she's using drugs or she's an alcoholic or she's, 
a sex addict or, and that seems to be more with men, but, um, or a gambler, you know, has a gambling addiction. Some of those other addictions, porn, it seems to me like there are things that men gravitate to as addictions and things that women gravitate to. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree. I do think for women, one of the reasons is because it's, it's so readily available and it's something women often do together, right? You get together with a bunch of your friends. You're like, Hey, let's have a movie night. Let's go to the store and pick all our favorite junk food and let's eat. And we justify that it's normal to sit and binge together and enable each other. Women are always talking about their diet and failing on the diet. Women are being marketed to about the weight loss. So I think, you know, the food is readily available and it's everywhere. You go to the bookstore and there's food, you go to the gas station and there's chocolate and snacks. Like it's literally everywhere. So they know how to market to you and they know where to put it in the store when you're waiting in the grocery line, right? Check out and there's all the chocolate and all the candy and the chips. And if you have an emotional connection to that food and you've been using it to, you know, whether you realize it or not for that dopamine high and that feel good five minutes, it's just so much easier to grab it right? It's so much easier to justify. It's been a good day, a bad day. I just want this today. I want a treat. And if you've done diets and been conditioned that you, you have your treat or your cheat day, which I really dislike. Um, and we have that kind of verbiage going on in our mind. It just makes it so easy to convince ourselves to just have the food, take the break, take the weight off your shoulders, have the five minutes to yourself. Right. And I think as well, because of a lot of the hormone imbalances I see with women in the gut, flora imbalances, we're craving a lot of carbohydrates, processed carbohydrates, sugars. Some crave a lot of salt, which is really like thyroid and adrenal related, but we have all these processed cravings, which then just makes it even easier for us to justify and give in, right? We're not supposed to have all these cravings, um, but I do think that it's just listen to commercials, go ahead, eat the pint of ice cream right? Like they're literally encouraging you to go and binge and emotionally eat, right? And it's normalized because we think, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm doing it with other people. I just have, if I have it myself and no one sees, no one will know. But I think it's important that we don't normalize emotional eating because it causes a lot of havoc within us mentally, emotionally, energetically. Don't be hard on yourself if you're doing it. Try not to be, but let's not normalize something that, you know, is not a healthy behavior. You remember when I was eating sugar, it would be almost like I would zone out Mm -hmm. and I, and then I'd finish eating the plate of cookies and I'd think, oh my God, what did I just do? What, what's happening with that? Is there a numbing effect with the junk food that just kind of totally bypasses our rational brain or what's going on in that situation? Good question. So let's break down this. So essentially where it starts is you have been triggered somehow, whether it's a craving, you're angry, you're sad, you're overwhelmed. You just looked at your schedule and you're like, I want to cry. You got on the scale, whatever it is, but something has triggered you to now want to go to this food. Maybe it's the visual. You saw the plate of cookies and now you want them. So now what's happening is you start thinking about, oh, if I could just eat this, I'd feel so much better. This is my break. This is my unwind, my relax. And so as soon as you start thinking like, F it, I'm going for it. You start producing the dopamine, that feel good neurotransmitter, even before you start eating, because you're anticipating the reward, the high, the the numbing, the distraction, the the euphoria you're going to feel when you eat that food. And that's Because that hippocampus I was talking about earlier, the pleasure center of the brain, it's lighting up and going, yeah, when you eat this and do this, you feel this. 
And so all of this is literally starting to flood through your mind. The dopamine starting to be produced through your brain and flood through your body. You start salivating, right? And then you eat the first cookie and it is, it's like your eyes glaze over. It's like nothing else matters. All that matters is that moment in eating. And one of the reasons we lose control is because this dopamine hit and this reward feeling we get literally are so hard to recognize and stop and want to interrupt in the moment. Why would you want to interrupt pleasure? It'd be like being in the middle of an orgasm being like, no, stop. I don't want to feel this good, right? No woman would want you. You wouldn't want that, right? So it's the same with this. You're like, oh, I'm starting to feel the dopamine. Oh my gosh, you take the first three bites and you're like, this is so good. I love life right now. Everything is so perfect right now, right? And then our blood sugar takes a big spike and drop and it doesn't matter what you're eating. Usually we're eating processed stuff. So we have a massive blood sugar spike and then we have this drop. So we have this surge of energy and euphoria and dopamine and then we have this drop. And so then all the things that start running through the mind and the body, well, I call it the ego mind. It's kind of the self-sabotaging voice that's like, well, you already had one, so the day is ruined, so you might as well just have more or eat them all because you don't want to have to deal with this tomorrow and lose control again. Today's your day. This is it, right? It's like that lack mentality. I got to eat it all. I got to get it out of the house. I don't want to be tempted tomorrow. So there's literally this voice justifying now why you've messed up, why you suck, you have no willpower, you ruin things again with food, you're never going to lose the weight, And all of that makes you just feel like garbage. You're like, well, yeah, F it. What's the point? I'm just going to keep doing that. The ego also is like, ooh, like this is so good. You know, keep enjoying it. You deserve it. You deserve the reward. So it justifies both sides, the negative and why you should keep going. Um, So we have that voice to deal with. We have the dopamine high, the blood sugar rush. You're feeding all that unhealthy bacteria. And it's literally like, keep feeding me. Give me more. I want to grow, right? So it's, it's loving it. And then we, of course, the more refined sugars and MSGs and aspartames and gluten and dairy can do the same thing as well. Um, the more of that we eat, the more of it is in our body, our tissue, our cells, our digestive system. Well, then it increases our appetite levels because the body's like, maybe there's a famine coming. So I'm going to try and eat as much as I can to survive because the body's programmed from caveman days. So there's all these different things going on emotionally, physically, and chemically in the body that we don't learn about how to navigate or even know about really, to be honest. So it's so easy to start eating and then lose control because of all of those things, right? And then the, the guilt you start to feel, oh man, now I've had three cookies. Well, whatever, what's the point? I might as well just keep having more. So we eat because now we're triggered in guilt. We're feeling the shame kick in, the embarrassment. So now the euphoric highs over and now it's the after effects, the frustration, the the disappointment, the hopelessness. And now we're eating to try and numb that. So it's very much a numbing distraction, chasing a dopamine high. That is really the addictive component of it. And then all these, you know, blood sugar and things going on in the body. It's that's why it feels so hard to stop in the moment because there's so many things going on. Yeah, been there most of my life. Okay, well, I've already blown it, so I'm mm-hmm. going to start again tomorrow. And then yeah. I blow it tomorrow, and then I think, okay, I'm going to start again the next day. And yeah. Craziness, crazy. Yeah. So other than the fact that your mom was ill with MS, do you come from a family with more people that have weight issues than than just your mom? having lots of junk food around is that kind of, I I see that it seems to run in families, the obese thing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is it, is it nature or nurture? 
or is it both? You know, is it a DNA predisposition to be obese? And then it's the eating patterns too. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Thank you for bringing that up. So there was a lineage of hoarding lack mentalities and food addiction from my mother's side of the family. And I didn't discover this until I started to really do my own healing. And what I discovered is when my family immigrated from Europe in the early 1900s, my great, great grandmother and grandfather, they started fresh here. And then through World War I, lost everything. So what happens? You go into a lack hoarding mentality. And then great grandparents, World War I, World War II, lose everything. Grandparents lose everything. Mom grows up in a family, a very poor farming family, right? So there was all this hoarding. So my grandmother was very overweight, ended up with diabetes and all that stuff. And so my, my two mom sisters and brother, all very obese, very overweight and, and food. You can just, I just lovingly observe the way they are with food. And it's very similar to the way I used to be. And so I think that lineage can be passed down the addiction. And maybe for some people it's their parents had alcoholism or other addictions, but it's been food the whole way on my mom's side of the family. So it's a huge part. I think it's a lineage thing because this is the thing is if my great grandmother and grandmother and mother didn't learn how to love themselves or didn't like go, okay, think that maybe I have an issue with food. Maybe there's something for me to heal here and they don't heal it. Well, they're, well, innocently they're passing it on likely and they don't even realize it. And then I'm taking on the behaviors because the food's available. I think it's normal. I think I should use food to cope for everything. I hate my body because I always t- saw my mom talking about how she hated her body and I'm insecure. So how, like she didn't mean to, but it innocently gets passed on. Maybe there's something in the DNA, but I, I don't like to say necessarily that because I don't want to believe it's permanent and I'm a prime example like I healed a lineage of five generations of hoarders food addicts and very overweight bodies right like when my mom was my age she was heavily obese already um you know two or three hundred pounds overweight and now I'm you know 35 gonna be 36 and I'm very healthy I don't do anything to restrict and try and attain a certain weight my body just stays here and I go by the way my clothes fit but what I've done is I've healed the trauma. I've healed the lineage. I've healed the unworthiness and limiting beliefs and learned how to love my body and heal with food. And obviously there's been lots of energy healing and spiritual healing as well. Um, and it's, it's still obviously on a daily basis, like with certain things aside from food, food isn't an issue anymore, but that's my response. I think if we actually heal the lineage and heal the negative thoughts, limiting beliefs and behaviors that you inherit from your family, and then we balance, we investigate the hormone gut issues, inflammation, right? Those things that are going on because of all the self-sabotage of food, you can end up in a completely different space in your body, headspace, physical state, and it doesn't have to continue. I have two thoughts on that. Number one, I believe alcoholism is a sugar addiction yes. because I think it's just like a sugar IV. You don't even have to digest it. I mean, it just goes right in, number one. And number two, on the DNA thing, I work on people all the time and I watch DNA get healed mm-hmm. all the time. Cancer patients, patients with debilitating diseases, I mean, whatever. And it's remarkable how well it works. But the other thing about the DNA is I think it's way more epigenetics than genetics. Yes. We may have a predisposition, but it's the environment that triggers that activation of the DNA. So it's like you can have a gun 
and it's loaded, but it's not going to fire unless you pull the trigger. And that the environment is what pulls the trigger. So I always, people will say to me, clients a lot will say, well, my mother and my grandmother were obese and they had diabetes. So I know I'm going to get it. Or everybody in my family has had Alzheimer's. And so I know I'm going to get it. I said, no, you don't. That doesn't mean anything. It means it's lifestyle and you have control over that. And so great question and answer session with that, because I think so many of us are taught by doctors, oh, it's a DNA thing. You you go in and what's the first thing they want you to do? They want to see the family history filled out on the chart. Yeah, I agree. And, And it's just, again, we're conditioned to think that that's what's going on. How does binge eating affect hormones? Good question. Have you ever heard of Cozy Earth Bedding? It's your ultimate luxury escape. Cozy Earth sheets are temperature regulating and incredibly soft, and they even have a 10-year warranty. They're made from organic bamboo and silk, are hypoallergenic, and even antimicrobial. Cozy Earth sheets are so amazing, they've been on Oprah's favorite things list for five years in a row, and I have them on my bed right now. So if you're ready to elevate your sleep, Cozy Earth has a special offer just for my listeners. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code AskJulie for a 35% discount. That's C-O-Z-Y-Earth.com and use code AskJulie for a 35% discount. Upgrade your sleep with Cozy Earth Bedding. I love them and so will you. So with binge eating, essentially what ends up happening is obviously we're, you know, usually taking in too big of a load of food into the body, usually the quality of that food. It's like you said earlier, you don't binge on broccoli. You don't binge on carrots. You're picking the cookies, the fast foods, the chips with all the MSGs, all the stuff. And so that highly processed food intake and taking in too much of it, first of all, it actually starts with some stuff in the gut that then impacts to me, the hormone health. So well, two things. Number one, we're having a massive stress response. So I guess that would be your cortisol. So that would be hormonal and you're surging your cortisol levels. And then number two, your stomach is like, holy, this is a big load of food. I don't have enough stomach acid to break it all down. Right. So it's probably some of it's going into the small intestine into larger particles where we're supposed to be absorbing our nutrients. And it starts agitating the intestinal lining. Um, and to me, this is where inflammation really starts with this processed ingredients and the agitation of the lining. And then the longer the lining is agitated and we keep doing this, the more we end up in the leaky gut picture where there's those microscopic holes and there's bacterias and food bits going into our bloodstream and there's not supposed to be. So the immune system is constantly attacking and trying to eliminate the set of the body. So now your inflammation's through the roof. Um, and how that impacts the hormones is the more inflamed we are the more pain and and discomfort we have with our digestion, the more heightened state of stress the body's in and the more of a heightened stress state the body is in, the more cortisol we're producing and that's our stress hormone. And I, 99% of my clients, including myself, have had a cortisol issue. You know, some people term it adrenal fatigue when the cortisol is too high and adrenal burnout when it's too low. I still to this day had the highest cortisol reading out of any client I've ever had. It was 2000. And here in Canada, it's supposed to be 350. So it was definitely, I don't, I'm like, I'm thank God I didn't die. Like, I don't know how I made, made it through. Um, so cortisol is the first issue um, that I see go off. And then because of all the inflammation, inflammation suppresses our thyroid. 
And so then the, the body starts to get overwhelmed and then we start to see lower uh, production of our T4 and T3. And then we start to see the underactive hypothyroid picture. Um, the other um, hormone that's important for the thyroid is thyroid stimulating hormone. This is produced by the pituitary. And when our cortisol is ramping up and our nervous system is overwhelmed, we produce too much of it. And then we see the TSH go up, up, up. Now, unfortunately, I see and believe that the ranges of normal are way too big because I had hypothyroid in the normal range. And so do a lot of my clients. If you're having hair loss, eyebrow thinning, cold hands and feet, you can for the life if you feel like you can lose weight, you're exhausted in the morning, your cycle's off, you don't feel like yourself. Like these are very prominent signs of underactive thyroid as well as constipation and no appetite, especially in the morning. And so when we start to have all this inflammation and it's suppressing the thyroid and our cortisol is going off and we're producing too much TSH, we end up in this hypothyroid picture very easily. Um, and so then you have those symptoms and then you get so frustrated with your body because you can't lose weight, right? And then you try the diets and then more binging kicks in. Um, and then what ends up happening is then the longer our cortisol levels are high, the more depleted our adrenal glands get. And that's what produces your cortisol, the two little walnut shaped glands in your back. And then the body starts to go, well, we need more cortisol to keep you functioning at this high level. So let's eat up progesterone and estrogen. And then your progesterone levels start to drop start having fertility issues, missed cycles, menopause symptoms kick in sooner or get worse if you're in that stage. I usually see low estrogen and progesterone. However, for some people, which I went through, the lower your progesterone, if there is a high inflammatory picture in the body and your body's full of toxic chemicals from all your skincare, body care, and all the junk food you're eating, estrogen goes through the roof. And then you end up with estrogen dominance, breast tenderness, days and weeks before your cycle, hot flashes, night sweats, easy weight gain, feels next to impossible to lose. So this is the picture I usually see with the majority of the women that come to work with me. And the issue is we're not taught about our hormones. We're not taught how to look at the numbers. We're not taught what symptoms are going on. And so we just get pissed off at our bodies that you're gaining weight and you have all these symptoms and we think our body's out to get us. But that's what I see with binge eating. So the cortisol spike, the inflammation, the leaky gut suppresses the thyroid, messes with estrogen, progesterone, and then we're tired and craving everything and we don't feel good. Yeah. Back to my late Dr. Truss. I think he sits on a cloud and looks down on me and Probably. says, you go girl. Because <laughs> this guy was a Cornell educated internist who taught at Cornell Medical School for years. And then when he retired, he moved back here to Birmingham, Alabama, which is where he was born and raised. And his family was still located here. And one day I was in his office and I said, I meet all these young women in your office that are having infertility issues. What does this have to do with yeast overgrowth? Mm. And he explained to me something I haven't read elsewhere and I haven't heard anybody else talk about, but he was a teacher. So he took me back in his lab and I got to look through his microscope. And he said, what happens is when we have leaky gut, the body's in an immune response and the cell membranes get tough as part of the immune response to keep out the invaders. Well, in doing so, it keeps out all of the hormones as well and the nutrients and the goodies that help us thrive. And he went on to say, Amber, he said, I can do a blood draw of a young fertile-aged woman and her estrogen levels are perfect. He said, and then I do a vaginal swab of the same patient and her vaginal cells look like those of a 90-year-old postmenopausal woman that hasn't seen estrogen in decades. So he said, once we get the gut healthy, that immune response stops, 
the estrogen and the other sex hormones can penetrate the cells. And he said, and these girls get pregnant in short order. Mm-hmm. And so I used to tease him. He was in his 80s when I knew him. And I used to tease him and I'd say, Dr. Truss, how many girls did you get pregnant this month? And he turned all red. He was really cute. Aww. But he, boy, that just made such an impression on me 25 years ago when he said that to me. And it pertains to all of the hormones, not just the sex hormones. Yeah. Totally. And that's, it's so funny when you bring up the pregnancy thing, because I've had six clients get pregnant in the last year after healing the relationship with food because, and I agree with everything he just said, totally. It's the body just goes into this fight or flight response. So of course the cells are going to react that way. And the last two priorities when you're in this state are reproduction and weight loss. There's just so many other things your body is trying to sort out. Yeah. Well, I work with a lot of young women who are trying to get pregnant as well. And so I always tell them that story and say, this is something that you've got to heal. You've got to heal your gut first before your body's going to get pregnant. Because to your point, the body's going, ah, I got to take care of all these other vital organs before we add an alien baby in there and (laughs) pulling on your energy and all the rest of that. Yeah, totally. How did you dissipate your own limiting beliefs? Well, I started to realize I had them and then I started writing them down. I started to catch them. I started to build awareness around, ooh, okay, well, when I see my body in the mirror and I see at this angle, I'm saying these things to myself. I am recognizing how often I'm negative and blaming everyone else for my binges and for all my problems. I'm, I'm in victimhood mode. And then I had a body talk session and the lady was like, Let's talk about what the ego is. The ego is the voice that is telling you you're not good enough, that is telling you it's everyone else's fault, that doesn't want you to take ownership or responsibility. And I was like, whoa, my ego's been like running the show my whole life. I haven't, I don't, I haven't even known what power is until I started to understand what the ego was. And so I started to then learn a lot about it and and through a little bit of body talk and then just like diligent work of like a lot of journaling, a lot of writing down my thoughts, a lot of what does it feel like to be in my power truly in my heart versus living in my ego? What are the differences? What are the sensations, the thoughts, the feelings? What is my vibration like, right? How do I treat people? How do I show up in my life differently depending on who's leading the way? And what I really came to realize is that when my ego is calling the shots, I'm in victimhood mode. I'm blaming everyone else. I'm being hard on myself. I'm being critical. And when I'm in my power, I'm being loving and compassionate toward myself. I'm owning my stuff. It's not anyone else's fault. I look at things as lessons, right? And we have both and we're going to go back and forth, but that was a huge part of it. And also the weight loss journey part of it was big too, because what I started to realize is a big part I was hanging on to protection was because of all of the self-talk, the hatred toward my body, the rejection of my body, and that my body was literally like in this contracted state, like just waiting for the next verbal emotional attack, right? Because our cells listen to our thoughts. And so if I'm constantly putting myself down and belittling my body and and projecting hate to certain parts of her, why would she open up and be relaxed and and, want to let go of this protection? So my body started to teach me about the, the limiting thoughts as well as body image triggers came up as I, you know, started to wean myself off the scale or needing to be a certain number and building acceptance and self-love. These triggers would show me where there was still these inner insecurities or inner child wounding. 
And of course my ego still kicks in sometimes, not so much with body or food anymore, but you just learn how to navigate it and you spend a lot more time living in your power than the ego. I used to feel like there was a good angel on one shoulder and a bad angel on the other. (gasps) The good angel was going, no, no, don't eat that. Don't eat that. The bad angel was like, oh, you're going to love it. You need to eat that and you need to eat all of it because it may not be there. And the good angel's going, no, no, don't do it. (laughs) Craziness, craziness. So you mentioned earlier that, that the core belief is unworthiness for emotional eating the unworthiness can take so many different paths, Mm -hmm. I'll say. And do you find that there are maybe three or four or five unworthiness core beliefs that you find that is the norm that you identify that can help everybody that's watching and listening this know, okay, I believe that I've got that. Yeah. hundred percent. Totally. There's like, five or six common ones that people are going through. So, so it's like, it's nothing's ever going to be good enough. And I find that really ties into the perfection all or nothing. I have to be perfect and show the world I'm perfect. And if I can't be perfect, then nothing's ever going to be good enough. And then there's the core unworthiness. There is the, I need everyone to love me and I need everyone to like me and I need everyone's approval and God forbid I ever upset anyone right? Because it would be the end of the world. And then what stems from that is the people pleasing behavior, saying yes to everyone else, no to yourself, overbooking your schedule, then you're overwhelmed. And then you're of course going to self-sabotage with food. And I find that's a really big one because when we people please and we tie our worth to others and give others like the responsibility to validate us rather than us validating ourselves, it's the same kind of dopamine high we chase waiting for them to compliment us or tell us we did a good job as sugar gives us. So I find People pleasing is so prominent because of as soon as you do the thing for the person, they go, thank you. You're so great. You're like, don't move me in here. Just like I just ate sugar. So that's why I see that's such a huge emotional eating trigger and stems back to that unworthiness. And then I see the proving, right? I was bullied as a child. I'm going to have the perfect body. And then I'm going to get the revenge on all the men who were assholes to me, right? Or I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm a success and I'm rich and I'm wealthy and I'm all these things because I have this wounded inner child that just never got validation or never got told they were good enough. And then there's the, you can, that's good, but you can always do better, right? You got the A, but you didn't get the A plus. And your parents are like, oh, you got an A, you can do better. Oh, you got the gold medal in this. Well, maybe next time there's something more you can strive for. So there was never this, like, I'm just going to be proud of you and celebrate you. There was always like this gap and this lack and something that wasn't enough. Um, and then I feel like it really comes, the body is the next one, the body shame and the weight shame and the feeling insecure living in the body. And, and that no matter what I look like, it's never going to be good enough. Even if I lose the weight, I still don't feel it's enough. Right. And so then we're, you know, doing all these crazy things to change our bodies, even though we're still not happy. So I feel like those are the main ones that I see regularly. And some people are experiencing all of those at the same time. Well, and I think it's common too that when somebody, especially a woman, loses weight, she s- still sees herself as a big person. Yeah. Instead of I, I know my mother when she got older, she lost a lot of weight, and her clothes were just so big on her. And I mm-hmm. said, "You need to come down a couple of sizes." She said, "No, no, this is the right size." I said, "No, it isn't." And I took her shopping, 
She yeah. lived on the other side of the country and I took her shopping and I said, see, these look way better. And, and what is that body dysmorphia or mm. something? What's the term for that? And yeah. I, that's pretty common, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Because you get so used to seeing your body a certain way so that there's programming happening. You're so used to seeing your image a certain way. It takes time to reprogram the subconscious mind, but then you also have all this programming going to the subconscious mind of all of the images of what your body should look like, right? Think of all the millions or billions of images of video and print and Barbies and all these things that have just been ingrained into our subconscious mind. So it's so skewed because even after you lose weight, you still, when you think of yourself, you, you normally think of yourself at the previous size. Right. And so I think it's, it's important that we start to like reprogram our mind and our brain, whether it's that we, you know, look in our, ourselves in the mirror more as the body's feeling safer and going like my body's safe. I feel safe in my body. It's safe for me to release this protection and it's safe for me to maintain it. I'm worthy to do so. Right. And also at the same time, look at the images that look so fake and false and go, you know what? This very well could be edited. This very well is not real. So um, I actually want to learn to get more comfortable and familiar with my own body and at what is like a more natural, realistic looking body and actually have my subconscious mind start to accept this. Right. While I practice consciously accepting my body, which takes time. And you have to do a lot of work with the ego, right? And everything else, but it's fully possible, right? To get to this place of acceptance and love. And then to actually look at other women and actually think in your mind, wow, they're beautiful. And actually in your mind, be complimenting them. Or if you see something online, you know, I think we can get to the point where we're not comparing and where we can celebrate other women or and also go, wow, that's definitely Photoshop. This leg is like three times bigger than the other one. And there's a straight line going down. You know what I mean? Like, and that's such a great, powerful place to sit in, right? Where we're so detached, but so grateful for the vessel that is giving us our lives and can celebrate others and, and their beautiful different shapes and sizes. Oh, I agree. And I, I've heard from women too, who are clients, I've heard more than once I don't feel like I want to lose weight because I'm going to have lots of loose skin and that's going to look even worse than the weight. And I heard from somebody recently, she said, I've lost a lot of weight. My whole body looks like melting candle wax. Mm. So what do you say that that goes back to the body image, but I don't want to lose weight because I'm going to have all that loose skin. What do you say to that? Yeah. Well, I think part of it is, well, why don't we just start working on some acceptance and that you're not going to lose five pounds tomorrow and have this occur, right? Like what would it feel like for you if we could establish a marker of safety each step of the way? Does that feel okay for you? Does that feel good for you? And what if actually you don't have a bunch of loose skin? Cause that is some women don't, right? Maybe you have a few stretch marks and things like that, but can you shift your perception and see that as a memoriam and celebration of all the healing you've done, right? And this is your unique body and you get to celebrate that. And if you are losing weight and you're getting a lot of loose skin, well, then it's like, how can I shift the way I'm viewing my body? How can I see this as a celebration of doing such a you know deep inner healing that I was able to let go of this? And, and some women will lose the weight and then they will, you know, take a step to do something about the skin if they feel called and some will learn to accept it as part of them. And, and, and when they see it, instead of the brain landed, I'm going, that's bad. That's ugly. I don't like that. They're going, wow. Like I'm celebrating the healing I did. And this is 
part of that. So it, it really depends on the path the person wants to take, right. To their perception of what they want to see it as, I think. Great answer. I believe too, for me personally, that my weight journey has helped me spiritually. I believe that it's gotten me interested in, okay, what is, what does psychotherapy really do to help? What is something that I can rely on? Is there more to this story? And I hear that a lot, that people will say, well, I was sick, and so I looked at other healing modalities, mm-hmm. whereas before I would have just done what the doctor said. And now I'm going to take what the doctor says, and if it resonates with me, I'll do it. And I'm going to add these other modalities of healing to the equation. And that's what I Mm -hmm. tell people what I do. The work that I do, especially as a medical intuitive and energy healer is complementary to Eastern and Western medicine as we know it and is part of the healing equation. So have you found that with yourself and with your clients that it really is a spiritual path as much as a physiological path? A hundred percent. The first and one time I mustered up a few hundred dollars when I was on my healing journey because I was broke. I saw a medical intuitive and it blew my mind, the energetic, spiritual and emotional connection and how it was all impacting my physical and emotional state. And it is a very spiritual journey because when I started to heal the binging and catch the triggers, my intuition like lit up. And it was scary at first. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing things. I'm feeling things. I don't want to know. And so I suppress again. So another reason we'll binge is actually because we are afraid to access our light and these gifts that are so powerful in our birthright because we don't know how to use them or we're intimidated by them. So I started to like ease into it's safe to access my intuition. It's a good thing. Like this is a gift, right? And then I started to realize I was an empath. And I was very sensitive to other people's energy. And I was really bad at taking on other people's stuff. And that would trigger me to binge because I'd leave with a whole be- suitcase of energetic baggage. And now I would be emotionally eating because I was taking on their overwhelm. And so it taught me how to set really good energetic boundaries and emotional boundaries. And then I, you know, learned and was taught a whole energy hygiene routine of how to manage my energy field. And then I started to go, wow, I'm manifesting more of the things that I want when I'm not in self-sabotage with food in my body. Wow, because my vibration is going up exponentially because when we're self-sabotaging with food, we're dropping to lower vibrations and then we're engaging in other low vibration behaviors, victimhood mentalities, blaming others, getting into arguments and fights, going and messaging exes and like, you know, just doing things you wouldn't do if you're in that high vibe and you're in your power. Um, So what it really taught me is, wow, my vibration is something I really want to learn how to build on and and manage and grow. And self-sabotage is just really hurting that for me. And then, you know, it's like, wow, now I'm starting to learn about past lives. And I was a starving prisoner in a past life. And I had leprosy in another past life. No wonder I have body image issues and wanted to just eat the world, right? There's these hidden parts of me that finally came up for healing. Um, So it's, And it's just awoken me to a lot of different things that I probably wouldn't have if I wouldn't have gone on this journey, remembering who we really are. We're this beautiful soul and this human vessel having this human experience. And we all came here to learn certain lessons, right? And so being able to have this journey bring me to this point is such a blessing because 
these are things I wish for everyone to get to experience rather than you're just this mundane human on this planet that doesn't have a purpose to serve, which is so false. We all have so much purpose to serve and so much to give regardless of what we're up to. Um, and I think healing gives us this access because as my clients heal, they're like my intuition, my, you know, different clairvoyance or whatever their gifts are like starting to come up. They're listening to that gut feeling. They're making the empowering decisions. They're letting that lead. They're talking to their higher selves. Like it's incredible the access. And now because they have that, they trust themselves. And when we have that inner connection and we have trust and faith, life is so much more incredible than when we're fearing everything and worrying about everything and looking for everyone else for validation and input and reassurance it's stressful to have to keep relying on everyone else for that. It's very well, spiritual. I agree. And to your point about their intuition, they can access it easier and all of that. When we feel badly, we're in a low vibrational state, yeah. as you mentioned. And I always say, spirit doesn't communicate on the I feel crappy channels because no. they're at a high vibration and they're communicating on a high vibration channel. It's kind of like they vibrate on the classical music channel. And if you're listening to country music about somebody stole your truck and your dog and your mama who yeah. was in the truck, that makes you feel bad and spirit doesn't communicate on the i feel crappy channels no to your point about past lives i find that fascinating i do past life work a lot with clients because you know i am a buffet of psychicness and and it's fascinating how there's always a correlation between past lives and what's happening in somebody's current life and it's like we come in with a script that's yeah. very generalized of things we want to explore and experience. And then I'll see a semblance of that script that will repeat throughout multiple lifetimes, mm. but we're looking at it from a different perspective. Right. Different time, different situation, different gender, different country, different whatever, different language. And the basic script, the premise of the script is still the same, but all of those variables come in and give us a very different experience and a very different perspective, mm -hmm. which each time we go through that, our spirit expands. Yeah. Because we don't really get stuff until we experience it. It's if you true. think about learning to drive a car, you can ride in the car with somebody else driving, you can read a book, you can watch a video, whatever. But until you're behind the wheel, you don't really get it. And I think that's yeah. how life is as yeah. well. And I think that's why so many people get really hard on themselves when they continue to get triggered and give into their binge and emotional eating triggers because they see it as a failure. They get really hard on themselves. They write, I don't have willpower. I need to try harder. What if you could shift your perception and actually go, what if this trigger is continuing to come up because there's a deeper lesson for you to learn? There's something bigger for you to get here. And once you really get that, right? then it will fall away. And, and now you have this knowledge, this awareness, this healing that's occurred, right? So for the people pleaser, who's continuing to get triggered to binge or emotionally eat because overwhelm and fatigue are continuing to come up because you are in resistance to stopping the people pleasing, learning how to set healthy boundaries and say no and say no, those triggers will keep coming up until you are willing to go, you know what, maybe even though it's nerve wracking and uncomfortable to think about saying no, when I want to say no, maybe this is actually really important for me and part of my healing and my power. Right. And then they start shifting. People pleasing falls away. Schedule's not so overbooked. The fatigue and overwhelm start to fall away. Less trigger. Right. So I agree hundred percent. 
Well, and women, I think as a species are taught to be people pleasers. We're yeah. taught to take care of everybody. And it's interesting to me that pretty much 100% of the time, especially if it's a woman who develops cancer, it's the only time, it's like her body going, okay, we're going to force you to yeah. receive because yeah. you're so good at giving of yourself and your time and all of that to everyone else. We're going to force you to receive from doctors, from other yeah. medical providers, from caregivers, from your family. I know when my dad had lung cancer, one of the things that was so overwhelming to him and it would bring him to tears was how much love he felt from people mm -hmm. wanting to take care of him and wanting mm -hmm. to help him. Yeah. And, and that was from a male perspective. So imagine what that is from a female perspective who just takes care of everybody. Yeah. One of my, one of my best friends who we've been friends since I was 10 and she was 11. Mm -hmm. So we've been friends for 54 years. She, we still laugh about this, but, it, but I think it's a wonderful example of her father. There were four kids. Her father and mother would sit at opposite ends of the table. Her father, the coffee pot would be within arm's reach of her father. And her father would say, hey, hun, can I have more coffee? Her mother would get up from the opposite end of the table, come around behind him and pour him coffee when he could have done it himself. And I remember as a kid really having to bite the insides of my cheeks to think, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. And now we laugh about it. But her mom, who's 92 now and still living, will say, well, he was an only child and his mother doted on him mm -hmm. and all this other excuse stuff. Yeah. And her daughters, her three daughters, I'll say, mom, come on. <laughs> but I think that's a great example of how we as women, not so much maybe now, yeah. I don't know any women that would get up and walk around the table and pour their husband's coffee, but certainly we're the ones that are the caregivers. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is just a species thing. And a lot of it is, is learned too. That's mm -hmm. what we're taught. Yeah. Yeah. But then we end up with all these adrenal fatigues and body hanging on to protection and then using all these unhealthy ways to cope because, and it is a lot of women are taught, like you don't take care of yourself first. That's bad. That's selfish you've got to take care, care of everyone else. And it's like shamed and, and frowned upon. And, and of course, when we don't know how to navigate through those kinds of comments or familial behaviors, we want to just fit in. We want to be approved of, we want to fit the bill. So we, we do that and we put ourselves into that. And then we don't, you know, experience the longer term costs and effects of that until it's, you know, we can't ignore it anymore. And I think it's this balance. Like I love giving and I love receiving and it's, it's finding that balance of both. And I know everyone has different lifestyles and schedules and kids and all kinds of commitments. However, I feel like there's always a way to bring in some balance. And I find usually when we start talking about social media and TV and, and all of these things, it's like if we spent less time on technology and opened up a little bit more time for us, we'd establish a bit more of that balance and that grounding and that self-connection and be able to let go of the programming of what our parents told us we should, you know, behave as to be approved of. Yeah. A couple more points before we, we end this, I could talk to you all day. Likewise. I, when I graduated from college, I graduated in 1981 and there was a 
big push to hire women in the workplace. So the women were who were homemakers primarily were starting to get jobs too. And so I was part of a quota and I was hired by a huge multi-billion dollar company. Thank you quotas, you mm-hmm. know, cause I got a job, but I was the only woman usually in this huge medical sales, you know, products environment. And what I noticed was that during my lifetime, since I entered the workforce, that women have become more and more and more stressed because they had all of the homemaker duties still, and now they had a Mm -hmm. full-time job and Mm -hmm. they have all the kid duties and the husbands. I think the younger people now, like your age and younger, are starting to be more equal in the man helping out more. But the interesting thing about this, Amber, though, that I've noticed with my friends is that way more moms died first, including Mm -hmm. my own. And I've thought it really, the trend changed because it used to be the husbands would die first, the dads would die first. But I have watched in my own lifetime where when the women entered the workforce, and certainly I'm a product of, I think it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But I noticed that there are way more women that didn't survive as long as their husbands did. Do you have any insights on that? Yeah, because I've had a lot of clients who have had to take medical or like decided to finally take medical leaves because they got the significance of of what this too much, like some of them, like 120 hour work weeks, three hours of sleep a night, that is inhumane in my opinion. Like that is not good for anybody. Um, and or, you know, women owning businesses where they literally think they have to be at beck and call for every client and every patient 24 seven and literally are not taking care of themselves at all, getting to the point where they're going to the hospital and the doctors are saying, if you don't make a drastic change, you're not going to be here much longer. Your C-reactive proteins through the roof, your, all your inflammatory markers are through the roof. You're walking heart attack, stroke picture, right? Like your, your, your whole body is just screaming for you to slow down. And so I think the things that I see that would really contribute to that number one is right? We're not nourishing our bodies properly or eating enough. We're not hydrated. We're not taking care of our basic needs. We're not getting our enough sleep a night. I love the eight hours, but everyone's a little different. So even with these few things lacking, these are vital. We start to go into a bigger stress response. The cortisol starts to go up. The inflammation starts to go up, right? And you end up with your high blood pressures, your high cholesterols, your right. All those kinds of circumstances start to creep in. Um, extreme fatigue starts to creep in. And if we don't look at things at that point, then this is where we start to see a lot of the autoimmune pictures coming in and these, these diagnoses coming in with cancers and arthritis and all kinds of different things. And and if we still continue to ignore it, this is where I think the body just right comes to this critical point where either we get a wake up call and we get a, hopefully a second chance or something happens because of these elevated levels of imbalance and malnourishment and fatigue. And then we're again, using food or alcohol as a coping or whatever it is. And and the body can only handle so much the stress, the space that this woman may be holding for her family, for her job, her coworkers, it's significant, right? And there's such a significant imbalance in what is being given and what is being given to self that, yeah, I see that all the time women just getting to the point where they're like, if I don't do something, I know I'm not going to be here in a year. And that's frightening in itself. It is. It is. Yeah. Which just adds more stress to the equation. Yes. Yeah. 
What do you recommend for everybody that's listening and watching? What are some steps that they can take to help them begin the journey to uncouple from binge eating, to uncouple from emotional eating, to start to figure out what can I do to get healthy and not just be obsessed with food as comfort? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a few things. So number one, be willing to just acknowledge that that's what's going on, right? I think we have to get out of this denial that it's not a big deal and it's not doing anything bad. Like be willing to step out of that and go, you know what? I think I am dealing with binge eating. I think I am emotionally eating. Let me just acknowledge. And then from there, we want to start building awareness around what's triggering us because until you're aware of what's triggering you, how do you catch it and change it? So ideally a practice I like to encourage people to start to get into is to recognize, okay, I'm in the kitchen, the food is near, I'm feeling tempted, I have a craving, but what is the first signs that you're feeling drawn to food? Thoughts, cravings, visuals, right? And then are you able to, before you just go to food, can you leave the room? Can you pull out a piece of paper, a journal, or even just in your mind, but can you go, okay, am I physically hungry? Do I physically need to eat or is this emotional, right? What's been going on the last few days? Am I tired? Am I stressed? Am I overwhelmed, right? Did I eat a lot of sugar yesterday? So now I just naturally want more, but am I dehydrated? But what is going on? Because starting to question and and explore is how you build the awareness and understanding of okay, this is what's actually going on. So I actually know I don't need food. So what I really need instead is to get out for a walk. I need water. I need five minutes to breathe, right? Maybe I need to talk to somebody, but we start to gain this clarity when we're willing to pause and actually look at what's going on. I also think that, you know, we can start to quiet a little bit of that binge or emotional eating by making sure we're well hydrated, drinking your, you know, two liters plus 86 ounces plus of water a day, um, trying to get a bit better sleep, right? Building a sleep hygiene routine where you're disconnecting from technology, ideally 15 to 30 minutes before bed and connecting with yourself, your spouse, whatever that looks like. And that's going to help you sleep better and sleep more deeply. Um, you know, sitting down and actually eating mindfully without distraction, just even try one meal a day. You'll digest better. You'll actually see what full feels like. You feel satiated physically and emotionally, and you'll be far less likely to go to food right? So just what little small change are you willing to make to start prioritizing you? And if you're going, Amber, I'm already drinking the water. I'm already eating mindfully. Like, give me something else. Well, then this is where it's, this is what comes back to the physical versus emotional hunger, starting to really understand your triggers. And then honestly, I think it's so important if you've been struggling with this for years or decades, and it's still an issue and you're able to get support, get some support. This is so multi-layered and faceted and complex. It is not a willpower thing. It is not about trying harder. Look at all the things we talked about today, the brain chemistry, the wiring in the brain, the blood sugar surge. Like there's so many things that when you start to become in tune with your body and listen and actually understand, you learn how to counter these things and work through them and regulate your body and your hormones and your gut and your blood sugar, et cetera, that all of this falls away and the urges go away, right? Be willing to work on your ego mindset the people pleasing, the unworthiness, because once we fill that void, we don't want to fill it with food anymore, right? If weight is your issue and you're really battling with your body, are you willing to start shifting your perception that weight is a protective mechanism and she's hanging on because she doesn't feel safe? Can you do a journal entry? Why get curious? Why is my body hanging on? And if you're not sure, start listening to podcasts, get support. Like, I just think there's, there's so many things we can start doing on our own and resources we can take up and 
you know, consume content. And then if it's still, you're hitting a wall, be open to maybe a next step with getting some help. By the way, curiosity is based in love and it's a high vibe. So when we're feeling badly, we're in a low vibe, just by getting curious, we change the channel, we change Mm -hmm. the frequency, and then we can allow guidance to come in. So I think that's worth its weight in gold. The curiosity in the form of asking these types of questions is going to get you into a vibration where you can receive guidance from spirit. Tell us about your body freedom program. Yeah. So the body freedom program is really the journey of really looking at a few key layers. So essentially we want to look at addressing and healing the self-sabotage of food. We want to look at your hormone health, your gut health, inflammation, the ego, which includes the negative thoughts, limiting beliefs, the weight body image protection picture, your schedule and your lifestyle, and then the energetic, right? The vibration, your intuition, the empath, the boundaries. Um, So what we do is we go on a journey to first really assess all these areas thoroughly and look at what are the imbalances going on physically, emotionally, and energetically that are fueling a self-sabotage, making your body hang on to the weight, giving you all the different imbalances that are going on for you. And then we start prioritizing, you know, the top two or three things. And usually it is the self-sabotage with food, gut stuff and hormones. And then the rest we kind of pick through as we go along. Um, But through a duration of four months, six months, or a year, we really work toward helping you become so in tune with your body, so in tune with what your triggers are, given tools and support to navigate through your triggers and actually understand, okay, I don't need food. This is what I really want. Instead, undoing these pathways in the brain and wiring new ones, which is I can cope in healthy ways. It's safe to feel my emotions, right? Um, working through the body image triggers, the weight loss blocks, balancing the hormones, all in natural ways, um, you know, and helping you feel safe living in your body, safe accessing things like your intuition, making yourself a priority that is safe to do so. And as this shift happens, right, the energy levels improve. You have a newfound confidence that, wow, I actually believe this time I can heal my relationship with food and my body, and it's not going to just be a thing I have to deal with for the rest of my life, right? You learn how to listen to your body. You can tell, okay, if I've eaten something, I know what, and this is what gave me the symptom. You start to realize how much your emotions play a role in your physical symptoms. And then you start to become more in tune with your vibration and what boosts it up and what it drops it down, right? What thoughts and beliefs and behaviors. And so as we go through this process, it really is to help women remember who they really are, how powerful we are, how full of love we really are. And that you've always been enough. You've always been where you are always had all this inside of you. You just forgot. And so we're going to replug everything in, give you your power and this unconditional love back to you. So you can show up and live the most incredible life and have the most incredible quality of life. And then ripple effect that out. However, it's meant to. What a gift you are to the world, not Thank only you. to just the women of the world, but the whole world, everybody. Likewise so, to you. Oh my gosh. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah. How can they so, find out more about you. Thank you. And thank you for your sweet words. I I can reciprocate them back. I'm so amped to have you on the show and like dive into you. I'm so excited. Um, so they can go to amberapproved.ca. That's the website. I have a free emotional eating quiz there. So if you're wondering if you're struggling or you want to see kind of where you're at, 
Um, you can also listen to the No Sugar Coding podcast. All the episodes are available on the website or any podcast app. And if you want to connect to talk about going on the journey, I have a 30-minute body freedom consultation. We can talk about you and what's going on. We can share more about what is available and see if it feels like a fit. There's all kinds of other little details and things on the website as well. Wow. Well, we've given everybody a lot to unpack here and to ponder. And I am looking forward to being on your show soon. Yes. And everybody, enjoy your day. Sending you lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama. And from Canada, where Amber is. (laughs) So we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan. And like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.